The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. I've said before, I wish I could cover technology history beyond North America more. Well, Charles Miller has started a great podcast in Britain called Tech Business History. Charles used to report on the tech business as a BBC documentary producer. In the first series of his podcast, he's exploring the dot-com era boom in the UK with some of the people he met when he was filming for the BBC back in 1999. Tech Business History is a fantastic podcast that I've absolutely fallen in love with. So what I wanted to do is just play you an episode from that show that I thought was amazing. It's exactly the sort of interview that I wish I had gotten for this show. In the episode we're about to hear... Charles is talking to Daryl Maddox, the founder of a very early dot-com called the Internet Bookshop. Yes, they were selling books on the Internet before Jeff Bezos did. But I'll let Charles introduce his guest himself in this episode of Tech Business History. If you like it, do catch up with the other episodes on iTunes or from your favorite podcast provider. And you can find the links to the show in our show notes. TBH. Tech Business History. Welcome to the TBH Podcast with me, Charles Miller. My guest this week started an online bookshop that was possibly the first in the world. He's not Jeff Bezos, but he is arguably Britain's answer to the founder of Amazon. He's Daryl Mattox, and he was selling books online in 1994 a year ahead of Amazon. In fact, Mr. Bezos later came to the UK to check out the Internet Bookshop, as it was called. We'll find out whether the Internet Bookshop had a happy ending in this podcast. But as we sat down in a cafe in Oxford where he lives, I began by asking Daryl about an even earlier triumph in his tech career. Now let's start at the very beginning, because... I understand that your interest in computers started very, very young. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I had um, uh, a few radios and record players that I took apart when I was a kid, always struggling to see how they worked. Um, Never, I don't think, ever managed to get one working once I had taken it apart, but that was always the sort of the intention. And then one day at school they had this, this huge computer with 
the kind of it's called an NCR, same as an old till where you press the buttons and the buttons stick oh, like down. Like a cash register. Like that. And it was programmed with a row of 0 to 9, 12 columns of these. And uh, that's what got me started, you know, both the interest in, in how things work and then moving to this, this very old computer that they got in at school. And from there, um, it was very interesting to see the first computers actually hit the high street. So I was used to these things where you push the key and it stays down. And suddenly you had the Sinclair ZX Spectrum and the ZX81 coming out. And there's one that popped out called the VIC-20, which, you know, through, I think, the generosity of my parents, bless them, you know, they actually got me a VIC-20. And so I started putting together um, just some bits and bobs to move on the screen. You know, really sort of fundamental stuff. And then one day uh, I sat down with my then girlfriend, I was 15, my then girlfriend uh, sitting behind me on the bed and I just coded up this game about getting a frog across a road uh, on the VIG-20. And it took me two weeks working from, once I'd finished my sort of O-level revision work. Three so you were about, what, 14? 14, 15, yeah. that sort of time, you know, that sort of age. Um, working in a system that you don't use anymore. So it, these days we code in languages like C and PHP and you know, Ruby and stuff like that. Those days it was assembler, but I couldn't afford the assembler, so I hand wrote all the hex out. So the entire program, if you looked at it, was just a block of numbers. You know, 80 numbers to a line, and then just just a block. You look at it, and it's just like line after line after line of this hex. So you couldn't have been working at a more basic level than it was that. it was very very basic if you wanted to add a bit of code in to anything you had to then shuffle all the other rest of the numbers around you could never have more than 80 numbers on the line so you wanted to add a few numbers in here you had to shuffle everything else down and how were you learning how to do this was there sort of a great big fat book you were using of there's a couple of reference books but what it was largely it was a group of geeks there were about two or three of us that just loved this stuff you know it was just fascinating if you do this this will blink on the screen or this will move or the sound will come out or something and that just tickled me pink you know it was just good so we, we worked on it for two weeks on getting this frog across the road um, I say in the evenings girlfriend behind me you know having done my O-level revision and um, then probably the luckiest break of my life I sent it off to five companies and say look I've done this do you like it and I'd be buggered if Commodore didn't come back and said we love it We'd like the license to put it on every computer that we sell. And I got it. you look at the letter again, you turn it over to see if it's a joke by one of your mates. And um, that was my very first success. You know, it's a, a game called Hop It, um, of the Frogger genre. And if you got a Commodore VIC-20 or a Commodore 64, you would have got the game, you know. And um, did you get a credit on it when, it, when you... More than a credit. I got a jolly great big royalty check that came in and uh, then continued to come in, you know, over the next few years. It was... Um, but when, what I mean is when you switched on the game on your computer, did it, yes, did it, it say Daryl? It did. You sneaked that in there somewhere. I can't remember where it was, but yes, you know, DK Mattox, copyright, whatever the year was, you know. And, uh, so did yeah. you buy a computer so you could see it on a computer? Well, the, I had the VIC-20 that my parents bought me. Right, but that wouldn't have had it on it at the time. No, so I was programming with this tape deck yeah. next to it, you know, which was just archaic. You know, you put the, put the cassette in, and sometimes the cassette worked and didn't work. And, of course, being of that age, you know, when I started, it was, can you afford the cassettes to go in it? It wasn't... 
you know. And it was all plugged into the television set? It was plugged into a TV, and the yeah. TV was just ever so slightly blurry, you know, no mm. matter what you did, it was ever so slightly. It was a tiny little TV sitting on my desk in my tiny bedroom. You could touch all the walls. did put your arms out side to side, you could touch the walls, you know. So, but so. when Commodore got in touch and said, we'd like to buy this, did you sort of... How did you sort of strike the bargain, or did you just take whatever was offered? <laughs> I took whatever they offered. I mean, I was 14, 15, never done this stuff before in my life, and my pocket money went from about 50p, like 50p a week, I think, you know, and then a royalty check drops in for five grand, and you think, well, that's, that's okay, you know, and uh, Well, it was quite it. decent of them. Yeah. Not to do a buyout, wasn't it, really? Well, uh, it is. It's, um, they eventually did, you know, the royalty checks keep dribbling in, then we did a version for another computer, etc. It ended up doing about six games overall, you know. Uh, and I started off, obviously it was just me and my girlfriend behind me looking at the screen. She, she had a very strong idea about what looked good on the screen and she was saying, well, you know, if you do that, it skips a bit, so you need to sort that out. And I like the way you've done that. Well, yes, yes, both 14, 15 years old, if you can be a product manager at that age, I'm not sure you can, but yeah. So... Okay, so that was that was your first Very success. Early, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, then you went on to study IT, uh, software engineering. At I York. did. I did. And then, but then you sort of actually took a turn away from the entrepreneurial route by being an IT consultant, right? That's right. I mean, I, I had the a good knowledge of computers uh, as far as I was concerned. Um, I also had a. Uh, um, number of successes out there in terms of the computer games. So the course I was on at university was, I don't think they offer it anymore, it's called Seventh Term Oxbridge. So you used to do your sixth year and then after your sixth year you had an extra year to do your Oxford and Cambridge entrance exams. And I went for the Cambridge entrance exam and got a letter from them, uh, from Queen's College, bless their cotton socks, who said, dear Mr Mattox, I don't think we've ever had such a low result on our entrance exam. Um, 3% I got. <laughs> oh my God, how did you manage that? Because at the time I was doing these other games and my attention was on the games, certainly not on the, on the entrance exam. But it gave me a bit of time to do a few more games. I did a half a dozen in, in total. And then I had a choice of doing more games, carrying on down that track. But uh, what I wanted to do is formalise my knowledge in computing. So I went into university, got the master's degree um, to formalise what I was doing. And then at the end of that, the whole games industry had changed during that time. You know, it, it was way more professional. It wasn't two people in a bedroom. It was uh, a lot, a lot more swanky than than, than my efforts. Yeah, and so I took, I went down the road of filthy lucre and ended up being a consultant for a, probably about four or five years uh, on a day rate, selling my soul, selling my soul. Yeah. TBH, Tech Business History, with Charles Miller. So that brings us to, I think, about 1993. Yeah. And you began to take an interest in what you could make out of databases and email. Yeah, it, it, it was a lot of fun. The, there, was, um, there was an interest in me in books. So while I was working with one of the companies uh, up in Nutsford, I was staying in a little... Uh, sort of pub hotel and every night I would just play around with, with data, I mean, I've always enjoyed doing that it's, it, it tickles me so I started putting together a system to display books and when I started doing that 
It was very, very early days of the internet. I mean, extremely early days. And I remember I was trying to get a computer on the internet, so I phoned up British Telecom and said, uh, I've got a computer here, I'd like to get it on the internet. And she said, not a problem at all, sir, that's two and a half thousand pounds. And I said, what are you going to do for that? I said, we're going to put a fixed line in. I said, what will that connect to? And she goes, um, basically, she said, stuff. Uh, and I said, I need it on the internet. I want to be able to access these other services that are out there. And this is before the web really took off. Yeah, 93 was the, the year that Mosaic appeared yeah, for the ab- first Yeah, absolutely. Time. But this was be- just slightly before that, slightly before okay. that. And one of the early choices I had to make with this, this, this data that I was looking at was all to do with books. You know, I was looking at, can you display books? Uh, my, my wife, my... Uh, my long-suffering wife, bless her cotton socks, has been in books for a long time, and she's uh, was working for a publisher at the time called Blackwell Publishing. So I wanted to do something on books, and the early decision I had was whether we use the World Wide Web (WWW) or another one called Telnet, which was also popular at the time, or Usenet, which was like a bulletin board system, and there was even one out there called Finger. And one of my early decisions here was to get onto one of these systems and should we use Telnet, should we use Finger, should we use Usenet or this brand new fangled thing called HTML that is literally just rearing its head and so I phoned this lady up and I said um, can I get on the internet and she goes ah, of course you can sir I've got a list here of things you can connect to and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be damned if you look through that list the internet wasn't on there it was she could offer a fixed line from A to B and that was it you know, and it was along the lines of, well, where do you want the other end of the line to go? Which computer, which single computer would you like to link to? You know, there was no concept of, you know, you having a modem which will allow you to move into a, a switching device which will then take you out to the world, wider world. But, and that was the answer to the question, I'd like to be on the internet, yeah. was it? She was basically saying, oh, I'm sure we can, sir. Which, which thing would you like to call the internet today? Which computer, which single computer would you like your line to? So it was just like a dedicated phone line it was absolutely between two like computers. It, 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 absolutely like that. And, right. And so how did, it, how did things move on from that? Well, then I, I stumbled across... I mean, I'd bumped into the internet uh, at university, uh, using for email, uh, not HTML at that time. So I kind of knew what I wanted, and I remember... I can't remember exactly how I did it now, but I sneaked in access to um, a system called Janet, J-A-N-E-T, which was one of the very early academic systems. And they had this thing called Internet. It's brilliant. Brilliant. I think, from memory, someone allowed me to piggyback one of my computers on their Janet system right in the very early days. But that's going back a long, long time. Long, so long this time. sort of probably connects to the, the, the origins of the Internet in the States, where it was linking the universities that's together. That's right. Absolutely. They were, they were absolutely there. I mean, I was using email at university in the uh, mid to late 80s. You know, way before it kind of hit out to, to commercial use. But I was up in Nutsford, sitting in a hotel room, and um, so I got to play with, you know, this new book display system in the evenings. And uh, that you had created. Yeah, that I put together. I remember I was flopped on the bed of a hotel room, and you know, slowly but surely, the system started doing something like displaying a book title on a page, which for me at the time was just outstandingly interesting. Yeah, so yeah, really yeah. What, what you were doing was simply creating a web page yeah. and putting some writing in it. That's right, from a database and that's the interesting sort of tuppence worth uh, or the interesting sort of reason why it, it, it kind of took off is that the concept of a database sitting behind it. And I said to um, 
I said to the manager at the time, the guy I was doing this consultancy work for, which was a five day a week, um, you know, it's, it's going quite well. I really, really, really like it if I could take off Friday afternoon to work on this as well. And he said, well, ah, not a problem. Just work a bit longer on a Wednesday and, you know, on a Thursday and make up the time and have the afternoon. Brilliant. So he said, really look forward to getting in the evening and working on this system to display the books. And then on a Friday afternoon, it was like God's gift. Suddenly you've got three, four hours of solid time you could do on this. But when you were at that very early stage, in your mind, where was it heading? Was it going to be a, an online business? Well, or I'd, what? I'd made money before doing, doing games. So there's part of me, I think, that thinks, well, it, there is a commercial value here. At the time, I think where I thought it would be heading is towards academic journals. And you, you, because don't forget, Janet is, is, was, was grounded in academia. Because would it mean that people would have to be using Janet and access to Janet yes. in order to see yeah, your absolutely, thing? Absolutely, because at, at that time, as I was putting this all together, there was no internet. You know, it was just starting to emerge around us. You know, and it, it did absolutely grow out. So you were either on Janet or you were... Or you knew someone who could get you on Janet. I think from memory, what I had is a modem connection into someone else sneakily sneaked into a university they had the other end of the modem mm. and I could dial in and that would get me on the you know it, it was it was held together with wet string and, and, and bits of blue tack I tell so you. in the back of your mind was if I can get a whole database of academic books yes uh, the prices then what would happen well I did I wasn't at that stage at that stage I was more along the lines of can it be done right and so you know I, I plugged on and sure enough it could be done I spoke to my boss and said, look, you know, this is, this is going quite well. You know, I only work half a day on Friday. If I do extra hours on Monday and Tuesday, can I take Friday morning off? Friday morning then led to Thursday afternoon and Friday. He then very kindly let me take all of Thursday and Friday off. At which point we had a system that I could then show to a couple of publishers. And I remember going to um, Oxford University Press, Cambridge University Press, um, and a number of the others, Wiley, and saying, look, this is the way you can show your books to a wider audience. And their very first question is, what wider audience is that then? In which case, I launched into the benefits of, of being linked up to the rest of the world with this Janet and this, this fledgling thing called the Internet. But it was text only, right? It was initially text only. Um, you know, images were too big to download over, over modems, and they weren't available. You know, if you're sitting in a hotel room flopped on the bed in Knutsford, Scanners were not a thing. Cameras, sure, you know, you could get a 35 mil roll of film and take it, and then, but how you actually got the image online you know, it was a bit of a black art, really, to be honest. Eventually, I, I had some interest from Blackwell's. Uh, they very kindly said, you know, yeah, we want to put our catalogue online with you. Um, Cambridge University Press, same deal. So we, we struck a contract with Blackwell's, a contract with Cambridge University Press, and, you know, money started to trickle in and I'm in trickle trickle but it started to arrive which means that I could then go back to my boss and say look I'd like Wednesday afternoon off as well at which point he said look Daryl <laughs> you know come on and make a choice and that was an interesting time for me because I had to either give up the day job you know which was paying consultancy rates so it was quite well paying and either do this or not do this so what did your wife have to say about it? she's fully supportive you know she was um she liked what we were doing and because we were selling it to Blackwell I think she could see the vision of where it was going but so Blackwell's and Cambridge University Press put some money in as, no. a, as investors no no as contracts so my contract with Blackwell's was to get them online 
you know, of course, being online being a term that no one understood at that time, you know, as a, but what we now understand to be online, um, by taking their paper and actually retyping sections of their paper catalogue, their book catalogue, and just typing in the blurbs from the books themselves. So was this sort of effectively their own website then? It wasn't your bookshop? No, it was, well, I suppose yes, it was my bookshop, but there was a section for Blackwell's and a section for Which they paid CUP. For. Yeah, which they paid um, a modest amount, not a lot of money. And then could people buy the books? Well, that's the whole thing. So when I made this move to be, it's a full-time job. I remember I, at this stage working from my back bedroom, and uh, I put it all through, and uh, I think I put a computer noise on when someone placed an order. You know, it went ding or something like that. And uh, of course, and the only people who ever knew about the system, the fact it existed, it was a very tiny community, was myself, some of my chums, and there was no central Google search engine. There was uh, a few people out there starting to do that. You know, Lycos was starting to spread its wings. But you know, there, there wasn't a great user base at all. And suddenly, I, I was sitting there one afternoon, and suddenly this computer went ding, and I thought, damn, it's broken. What's that? You know, it's, it's made this noise, and it wasn't me placing an order. It wasn't one of my chums placing an order. And uh, sure enough, it was, it was a, a, a genuine bony fide customer had found us through some mechanism which I'm, I'm sort of slightly unsure about and uh, placed an order for a book and I thought blimey you know do you uh, remember what book it was I can't remember what the book it was but I remember what happened next was I then printed the order off on my little dot matrix printer sitting next to me and uh, the next day I walked down to the bookshop in Raynham in Kent gave them the uh, the order and they said great we'll get that in for you they ordered it through their normal ordering systems and two weeks later I went down, walked down again to the bookshop, picked it up, walked across to the, the post office, put it in a, a package and sent it off to the customer and that was the very first order. I don't think we ever got paid for it because we didn't have a, there were cr no credit card integration systems or anything like that but I was pleased as punch that, that this order came through. Uh, how long had the system been up before the first order came in? Probably about five or six days that sort of length you know, so how did you get from one book to a business well th that is largely thanks to the Blackwell family I think it has to be said I mean you know the, the, we went from one ding a day up to the heady heights of about three dings a day and I remember taking these printed orders down to the post office and starting now to come back from the bookshop with a bit of a bit of an armful you know still hokey as hell armful of books sit down, package each one up and, and send so it out. this was sort of 1994 or something? That sort of time. Yeah. Sort of time, yeah. And, um, you know, the Blackwells have always been extremely supportive. And uh, a guy called um, James Blackwell saw what we were doing through the links through Blackwell Publishers, immediately twigged where this could go and um, bought half the company from me. And um, he then organised a meeting with his father, Toby Blackwell, Toby phoned up his chum at Whitaker's, which are the, the agency in the UK that um, issue the ISBN numbers. And I was there for the phone call. He phoned him up. He phoned up his, his friends and said, uh, there's this great company here. They're very young. They haven't got any money. They need a database. Can you help? And Whitaker's uh, just basically said, we'll give you the database. We'll let you have it on a CD because things had evolved then since cassette tapes. You know, we're up to CDs now. Um, and we won't charge you anything for the first year. 
And suddenly, instead of having 3,300 books on the system, we had, I think it was about something like 640,000 wow. titles. So suddenly you were doing something that people not on the internet could not have done. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so you then went through the whole fun and games of taking a computer that's hokey and held together with string, taking the investment from you know, James Blackwell and the Blackwell family and trying to actually get a, a larger system up and running. And, and that's difficult because the, the computer system we had basically said, you know, when it was searching for a book with 3,000 titles, you can start at A, see if it's that, start at B, see if it's that, and you can work your way through. But with 640,000, you, you know, we had to then suddenly start getting smart with database technology. How many staff did you have? <laughs> at that time, obviously just the one at the start, you know, and as I say, my wife was, was extremely helpful um, and knows the book industry, so that was, that was very useful. Um, so Sally and I to start with, then we brought on about four other people with a Blackwell investment. And at that time, we could afford one computer. So we had an office with the computer down one end of it. And that was the server? That was the access to the server. The server was under the desk. And uh, it was a server that I put together, I think they call it a bare metal server. So it was a case that I'd cached from somewhere. It was um, a disk that I'd beg, borrowed and stole from someone else. And part of our challenge was keeping that server actually running. Then I remember we moved from one server to two servers, so we got another PC next to it. And these are just, just big PCs that I kind of put together. And, and so, when, so when you were on a bigger scale like that and there were more people buying the books, what was yeah. the process of getting the book to the person at that stage? Well, it evolved. I, I think you know we went through then a whole series of talks with traditional booksellers. I remember one with uh, gardeners who, who distributed books. Um, and you know they, they didn't really get it. It was it was genuine anathema to them. You know, they were a what is it? B it will never catch on. C why should I get involved? And uh, and we found that a, a very difficult process. Um, we still found it easiest to actually place the order either by phone or later on we managed to put in an EDI link. Me with a bit of. Bluetack holding a rubbish bit of code together that just sent someone a text message and they sent, you know, sorry, an ASCII message. Uh, and they sent back an ASCII message saying, yes, we've got it. And, and again, in the office at that time, and we'd grown at that time when we did our first EDI to about 12, 14 people. We were just extremely excited. Uh, we couldn't get away from the, the, the requirement for people to send the books to us so that we could then send them out to the consumer. Uh, and, and that way we could offer the service levels we wanted. It always struck me as odd that if you wanted a book, it took two weeks. Why? I could never fathom that out. You know, with, with gardeners and the other guys out there, if I want the book, it's, it's over there on the shelf. You know, why? Can, can you go and get it for me? That would be absolutely great. None of this sort of come back in two weeks. Why? Never fathom that out. And uh, so we ended up with this stream of books arriving on a daily basis. And uh, that grew and grew and grew. Um, and, and satisfied customers? Yeah, people liked it. I mean, you know, if you compare the experience of flicking through a computer web page, what we know is a web page, and then pressing a button saying, click, I'll have it. And that was so much easier than walking down your bookshop, placing an order and coming back two weeks later, only to find they hadn't actually ordered it in the first place. It was just... But the audience yeah. must have been a very particular demographic. Yes. Yes, Did, yes, I bet yes. they wanted all sort of books about computers and stuff. Well, they? there was a lot of that. Yes, absolutely, I remember that. But there was also the, 
the notion in there of what's called long, long tail book lists. So it wasn't really, we sold very few bestsellers. Because people could just go down to the yeah, shop. And buy yeah, they didn't need that. They didn't need that. But all the weird and wonderful stuff, where you press a button on our system, and you know what? The team would, would work hard, generally work hard, to get it and get it to you timely fashion. And so that long tail, where you've got maybe out of that 650,000, you've got the majority, I would say 600 or 1,000 of that, are just odd books. I'm sure they're very interesting in their own right, but they're odd, they don't sell many. That's, that's the strength of the system. Yeah. Because, of course, you were really ahead of the game. Amazon only launched in the States July 1995. That's right. Which yes. was over a year after you'd started selling books. That's right, that's right. And uh, we had a meeting about it internally, and we looked at their offering when they'd launched, and uh, we thought, that's rubbish. It generally was. You know, our system used to, at that time, we had a system called Jenny, which again, you know, I coded over the course of a, a weekend and a strong cup of coffee, for which read glass of wine. But, you know, um, I coded the system called Jenny, which looked through what you'd purchased, cross-correlated what everybody else had purchased, and made recommendations. And then you'd get an email from Jenny at Bookshop Co. UK saying, hey, and we coded it in a very sort of a casual chat style. Hey, I see you've buying this. You might be interested in the following books. So when we looked at Amazon, they didn't have anything like Jenny built in. Their ordering system was a bit clunky. And we genuinely thought, well, they're not going anywhere. You know, our system is better. And the mistake I made, um, and it's a lesson I've learned, is that just because your product is better than someone else's product doesn't mean to say you'll be successful. It's more about your backing that you've got behind you and your marketing. And uh, Jeff Bezos came across, spent a couple of days with us, looking to buy a UK company. And uh, at that stage, they'd raised, I think they got, you know, I started the business with Bookshop with a few credit cards. Literally, I remember sitting down, getting another credit card authorized, and I put out about five credit cards on the desk, which were all maxed out, sixth. And th that meant to me I could get another server. I could afford a bigger memory chip in, you know, a set of memory in it, et cetera. So I had my six credit cards on the desk, and Jeff Bezos, I think, started the business with 10 million from his chums on Wall Street, you know. And what I didn't realize then is that was a strength that we didn't have, which enabled him to do more things that would ultimately drive the business upwards and onwards, you know, and, and make it a success. Yeah, because it's interesting, because he came from a business background. He did. You came from a technology yes, background. Yes, 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 yes. And so you each were more focused on the respective part of the business that yeah. you were experts in. I think so, and I still look back, I think mean, I got on well with Jeff, he's, he's a nice guy, he ended up buying one of our competitors, um, I still don't know what he paid, he niggles me a bit, but I think it's more or less what he paid for us, I'm not sure, a guy called Simon, he bought out Simon's business. Book, well, in, book according to Rory Kettleman Jones's <coughs> book, book pages, Simon Murdoch's, That's was right. sold for £20 million. Pounds. Damn, he did better than us then. <laughs> Anyway. Well, let's not jump ahead. No, so, no. so, okay, so you, you met, so Bezos, Bezos got, in got in touch and said, can I come and meet you and everything? Come and meet you with a view to buying either us or book pages. And in the end, he, right. in the end, he went with, with book pages. Um, Did he strike you as a person who was going places? Was he friendly? He was, he was friendly. We got on well. And, and the other thing is we both had this shared experience of, of going from naught to book business in 
you know, uh, X years. So it was there was that shared history that was. But you were the exciting. senior partner in that sense because you'd been doing it. Uh, in in time, yeah. But he, you know, he had that backing that we never had. Right. Tech business history with this week's guest, Daryl Maddox. Let's go back to the business story. Yep. You've got some money. You've got a much bigger <laughs> database. You're getting more customers. What happened then? Then, through happenstance, we seem to meet up with a guy called Tom Mackay. And Tom is uh, now a, a very extremely good friend of mine, and uh, he's a lawyer. He was able to um, introduce us to his contacts in the fundraising world. So we then went from, you know, an interesting company run basically off credit card income, you know, uh, it, it was absolutely get another credit card. Great, we now do this, and then we'll worry about the the, the problems that causes later. Um, but the number of users on the system was going up and up and up. It, it really was, you know, starting to attract a lot of attention and a lot of users. We uh, did a advertising deal with Lycos where we went on their home page. Um, that cost an absolute fortune and delivered virtually nothing. That was a search engine. Mm, your search engine. Um, we said, uh, how many times is your page viewed? They said, I, I can't remember the numbers, but you know, it's a million times a day. And we did a calculation saying, if only one percent of those click on us and buy something, <laughs> it was nowhere near one percent. It was a, you know, a thousandth of one percent. So we, we took a right bath on the Lycos like deal. Uh, through what a me whatever mechanism we were starting to be noticed and Tom took us to some of his uh, uh, acquaintances in the city and we happened to bump into a corporate um, finance advisor at Matrix who again Ken Nichols bought into what we were doing so he helped us put together a private placement memorandum and actually raise up some money I can't remember how much it was a couple hundred thousand uh, and suddenly that was a game changer for us. It was like huge. I mean, Bezos has had it from the start. But for us, that was big. We then ended up doing another round of funding, and we raised a million pounds. And, ah, uh, oh, that was just dreamy. You know, suddenly you've got, you've got this, this bigger amount of money. The attention we got on the run-up, because we did the whole road show of going around speaking to people and... You know, basically raising investors for the um, the flotation. Um, also, to brought us to the attention of uh, Bill Gates. So, Bill saw what we were doing, and saw that we were using Microsoft SQL, which they were trying to promote at the time. So, very kindly did a video about Microsoft SQL, but featuring us, you know, as as an example of how to do it right. And that led to a meeting in a, one of the trade fairs we went to, where I remember sitting down with the, the Microsoft head honcho for Microsoft SQL. And he said, look, we want to help. Yeah? In return, you know, do some case studies for us for Microsoft SQL. But what, what would really be great for you? And I said, well, you know, our servers are held together with bits of string under a desk. And I keep falling over. I could really do with a server. And he goes, how big? This is sitting in the cafe area of, uh, of one of the trade shows. And I said, oh, because you can, really. That will really make a difference. He then just leant his chair back on two legs until he was about you know, half a foot away from the guy who was sitting behind him. He was having a separate conversation. And he goes, Steve, you got any spare servers? 
And he goes, yeah, I should be able to. He said, okay, can you sort me out with one? He goes, yeah, I should be able to. And then he learnt Fords. That was it. That was the head of Microsoft SQL talking to the head of PC division for Compaq. Yeah. And then he said to me, he said, look, here's the deal. You're going to get £90,000 worth of Compaq equipment. It's never going to appear on any books. Never ask for it to be repaired under any warranty service agreement. Use this special number instead. And um, we did. Uh, you know, about three, four weeks later, this huge rack turned up with just, honestly, we were in cloud heaven, cloud nine. It was just dreamy. The fastest computer you had with more memory than you can shake a stick out. Not just one disk, but an array of disks. It was just gorgeous. Um, so, so it was all going so well. So It was. <laughs> and then, there's always an end then, isn't it? Uh, we grew, we, we ended up spinning out something called the Internet Music Shop with a guy called Barney, you run that. So we took our database and copied it into handling music and CDs. We then looked at, I remember a meeting again with Toby where I said, look Toby, we don't have to stick to books. We could do other things as well as books. And uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, anything with a catalogue really. Anything with a catalogue of, of, of stuff we can put it on. And I remember him saying, look, I'm a book guy, I'm in books, my background's books, we'll stick to books. And I came out crestfallen, you know, in terms of, that was, I think, the meeting where my path to going down the same road as Amazon by selling pretty much whatever you want these days was turned on the side. And because we'd done some fundraising, there, were, there was an element of control that, that the Blackwells had. So it wasn't about me saying we're going to do that it was about you know having to have a consensus they had the of, veto. of share well it was something like that but I couldn't I couldn't just do it nor did I want to they've been very supportive so you know I didn't want to do the dirty of them so my plans to take it into other markets didn't really seem to be coming off and we saw this this growing tension between what I wanted to do which was to grow it and really sort of turn the speed the pace of, of, of development up versus other people who wanted to keep it ticking along and grow it more organically. Because we were, I guess, moving into <coughs> a real sort of dot-com boom Yeah, it was stage. good. It was, the dot-com boom valued your company at, uh, broadly speaking, it was probably a few years before the dot-com boom, actually, two or three. Before Maybe 97, something. Yeah, yeah, which is slightly before Rather the... Rather than 99, Yeah, before the, the heady times. Um, but uh, people were valuing companies then on database sizes. And we had a huge database, so you know, it was a worthwhile thing. But I remember there was growing tensions between myself as the entrepreneur and the, the founder, and then the management team, which by that stage was you know, four or five directors, and the shareholders who wanted to nice, slow, steady growth. And this tension grew and grew. And you know, I wanted to I don't know, take it to higher heights and take over the world, and, and they basically didn't. So, um, it did get fraught. You know, it started to be, you know, I wanted one thing, they wanted another. Because presumably it wasn't making a, month, a profit. It was profitable at that time. You know, really? It was, you know, not hugely. Uh, it was sort of on a monthly basis. On a monthly basis. Was, yeah, no, it was all right. But a lot of money had been sunk into it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it had. But, you know, it, it, by any stretch of the imagination, it was a good business. You know, it was, it was growing, growing fast. You know, books were flooding in and flooding out. People liked it, good customer service. So it really was under in a, in another sector. It would have been a good, solid, growing business. Yeah. But in the internet at that time, the normal rules didn't apply. They didn't apply, and and I wanted to play in that bigger game, and I, I felt frustrated. I felt held back. Um, I felt then, and I probably 
still feel now that, that we could have gone faster and further, but the people around me, which in fairness, you know, I was in, in you know, I was uh, responsible for hiring, so you know, don't blame anybody for this, but I couldn't do it, and, and that frustration grew and grew and grew. But if you'd had your way, your investors would have had to risk more money, I guess. Even if it yeah, I, 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 I would I would say yes because I mean, where I could see I mean I could see that you move from this situation of having a book by walking down to the bookshop, waiting two weeks and walking down and picking it up again through to click and well that's they were pretty slick click and it arrives and I thought my God yeah it's revolutionary you know and it doesn't have to apply just to books it could be anything and um, that's what I wanted to do I really did you know and, and, and open up in the states and open up here and do this that and the other. So how did it all get sort of... Oh, tensions out? rose. Tensions rose. And I, I brought in a chairman called Simon Preston. Um, he was a recommendation from Toby Blackwell. And uh, Simon was great. Again, an, an extremely positive influence on my life. Um, and I learned a lot from him. And he said, you know, we need to, to put a lid on this growing tension. So we went on a three-day retreat into the middle of nowhere to analyze our navels and hug trees and build rafts and all that sort of stuff and uh, we came out of that three days with a clear vision about where we wanted to go all in books I think at that time I'd realized that it, it, nothing else is gonna happen you know it's just it's off the table and I was able to keep a, a lid on my frustrations and we all headed off on a much clearer path to take over the book world um, but there was there was there was a period there of, of really quite harmonious office life but it, uh, it surfaced again. I, st I still wanted to go out and do bigger, better, faster, more. And uh, so the tension set back in again. And when they started coming back in for the second time, you could almost see the writing on the wall. You could say, look, I've been here before. And I remember sending out an email to the rest of the directors. I was, I was so frustrated this one. I was angry that we weren't doing what I wanted to do, saying, look, if any of you think you can do a better job, it's yours. Take it. I'd be buggered if someone didn't come back and go, yeah, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and that was the beginning, really, of, of, of the point that I think many, many founders face. I would say the majority, vast majority, where they realise that the person who found the business and get it started and put the strings and the sellotape and the blue tack to hold things together is not the person who's then in a multi-million business growing it and driving it. And uh, that led then to me... Stepping out of the business. Were you forced out? I would say yes. But it was a situation where I still owned a large number of shares, but when you've put a management team in place and you can see they're doing a good job, if it's a choice of firing the entire management team, and I know people have done that, in my experience it never kind of works out well, um, or step out yourself. I did that. I stepped out and thought, look, the, the business, I sound very altruistic, isn't I? But, you know, for the good of the business. But it, it genuinely was, you know, they, they knew, you know, Stuart knew how to ship books and uh, the FD at the time, a lady called Caroline, was, was very good with the, the finance side of things and let them get on with it. And so I stepped out for a period of about six weeks and during that time we were approached by WH Smiths, who at the time I think were selling Waterstones and uh, the FD there said, look, I've got a bit of spare cash from Waterstones, you seem to know what you're doing, do you want to sell? And um, so, yeah, you know, fortuitous timing, really. A good dose of luck. So you sold um, for about £10 million. Pounds. £10 million, yeah. You know, so and you got a decent slice of that? I got a decent slice. I got, funnily enough, I got that awkward amount, which is 
It's enough to change your life. But it did mean that at some stage I would have to go back and do something again, you know, it's the, unless I moved to some desert island and just had ice cream for the rest of my life. That was about three million quid? Yeah, about three million. But at the time, taxes were like 40%. So, so were you against selling to Smiths or were no, you No, I was, I was by that stage fed up mm. with it. You know, this baby that I had grown, and I think a lot of founders feel the same way. You know, I, I know many, many people have been forced out of their company by whatever mechanism. And it's broadly by investors. You know, it, at some stage you will accept money from an external investor. That investor will want rights of some form. And you know, that ultimately leads to many founders being forced out on their ear. And it's a difficult time. So, so what, what became of the business then when Smith took it Smith took it over and um, I'd say it became a, just a corporate blob. Just their online book, Just their website. online bookshop. Hmm. Uh, and if you like businesses where it's exciting, it's growing, it wasn't that. You know, I was out of it at that time. You know, my deal with Smith's was I would exit the business. Um, but even then, I look back on it and it, did it... Did it fail to achieve what I think it could achieve? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But then again, it was run in a, a corporate fashion. But uh, actually, I mean, what's interesting about this is that if you look at what happened next, uh, uh, the sort of dot-com boom, yes. founders were selling up for massive amounts yeah, of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. Then the shares all I know. fell. I know. So six months later or a year later, people might have said, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Poor old Daryl. I know. He sold too early. I know. And then a year after that, sold at the right time. You said, "Well, lucky yeah, yeah. Daryl." Thanks for reminding me. You know, cheers, pal. You know, because because if you timed your exit at the right time, you could have got a lot. I could have got a lot more money, but I, I didn't know that then. And I think, <clears throat> as I say, at that time, you know, tensions were high between me and the other executives of the business. So I was happy to to take an exit. But you did well because yes. if you hadn't hit that sweet spot where yes. you would have got more money, you would have got less money. I know, I know. So, you know, look back, happy it happened, you know. But there is an element of, oh, if only I'd just dot, dot, dot. But, you know, you don't know. You don't know. Finally, I'm trying to work out whether the dot-com opportunity, the dot-com boom, is the absolute epitome of opportunity for, an entre for entrepreneurs, or is it actually an anomaly where things happened and opportunities existed that in a normal business environment just would never happen and therefore we shouldn't look at it too much as the sort of great days of entrepreneurship. I think it was a, a very useful period to teach people about what could happen and I think now if you look at the very exciting work that's going on in you know, gene research, um, if you look at what's going on with the, the new materials that are popping out where you know these these entire industries are are experiencing an opportunity for you know i think disruption is the posh word isn't it but you know things are changing and opportunities are out there to make money in in a massive way the same that we had back in the dot-com days but we now know a bit more about what how entrepreneurs can react to that and the the, the fortunes that can be made as a result of it and so i think people are now educated. So if you're in the doc, if you're in the gene research thing now, you'd know roughly what happened before. Whereas before, entrepreneurs were always kind of, I don't know, didn't have the the profile. They weren't in the newspapers. No, and now they are. And, and so that's been a useful learning point, I think, for modern day entrepreneurs. Um, it was a genuinely disruptive 
technology and, and uh, y you know that will that happen again yeah I think it will you know in other sectors maybe not soon you know it, it, you know I'm not a crystal ball gazer I don't think people can do that but it was a disruptive technology and if you take another industry maybe in the, the gene manipulation sector at the moment where you've got this disruptive technology available to a large number of people who now know that fortunes can be made things will come out of it that wouldn't have come out if, if the same thing had happened many years ago so so we live in a more entrepreneurial society as a result of that period. I think it helped. I think it, it raised the profile of what entrepreneurs can do and what entrepreneurs do do. You know, I, I now can talk to other people and say, what do you do? And they say, well, I'm an entrepreneur. And they, they don't look at you in this crazy fashion. You know, <laughs> Interesting. So where if you dial back to pre-internet days, you know, maybe, maybe people's idea of what a, an entrepreneur is wouldn't be quite so clearly defined. Darrell, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Uh, it was an interesting trip down memory lane. You know. Thank you very much. Pleasure. It's been great. Good. Thank you very much. Thanks so much to Darrell Mattox, who, incidentally, is still busy being an entrepreneur today. Thanks for listening to TBH, and do please join me for another episode next week. From me, Charles Miller, goodbye. See you next week for another episode of TBH. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. And if you weren't aware, I host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m. In that show, I tell you what happened that day in the world of tech. It's only 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's great if you love tech news. Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks.